You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. The podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal. And this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners. And I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content warning. The language content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of the award-nominated podcast, Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex, disability, and everything in between, or 
disability, sexuality, and everything in between, all those things. I'm your number one disabled Dick Smith, your disabled dandy, your handsome disabled dude, Andrew Gerza. I'm here to shine a bright light on sex and disability with you today. And all those things, I keep forgetting what the title of the show is. I'm here to shine a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. So, let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled, and let's get today started. As always, I want to give a shout out to the awesome people that help keep this show going and help to pledge when they can. And I just want to say thank you to a new Patreon peep this week, Yari Stillo, who pledged $3 a month to help the show go and to help keep the show going and keep a bright light shining on these issues around sex and disability at Disability After Dark. Thank you so much, Yari Stillo. You Yari awesome for doing that for me. Thank you so much. If you want to pledge between $1 and $5 a month, you can get the show one day early. So instead of listening to it on the live feed every Thursday, you'll listen every Wednesday on the Patreon feed, and you'll get an awkward shout-out from me for $1 a month. And at $5 a month, you can get uh, the chance to build a show with me and build a topic around whatever you want to talk about regarding disability, we'll turn it into a show. So you can do that at the $5 a month, and you'll get the show one day early in a sexy, weird, awkward shout-out from me. So Yari Stilo, thank you for pledging. If you want to pledge, you can do that at patreon.com. Slash disability after dark. On the show today, I sit down with life coach and mom, Heather Morgan, who sits down to talk to me about her experiences with an undiagnosed disability and what that means for her and her experiences being a mom with disabilities and her experiences being a wife, being a partner rather, to somebody with a whole other host of disabilities. Her whole family has a number of disabilities, and we talk about how that impacts her life, how her disabilities impact her life, her experiences being undiagnosed, and how that what that how that manifests for her. We talk about how all of these things impact sex and a whole bunch more. It was a really fun chat, and then halfway through our chat, the audio fucked up, so I had to put it in a little. You'll hear me be like, oh, the audio fucked up. Here's the second half. So you'll hear that there because my audio fucked up when I was recording. And we had to start the second half from scratch again, which really sucked. But uh, it was a great interview. I loved having her. She has a lot to say about grief, loss, disability, sex and disability, pain, being a mom to disabled kids and having a disability herself. So much goes on here, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So, without further ado and no more rambling, here's my chat with Heather Morgan, Life Coach, on Disability After Dark. Heather Morgan, hello. Hello. Hi, I'm so excited to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? I'm pretty excited to be here. That I am excited that you're excited to be here. Um, so first, hello, can you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us who you are and what you do? Um, my name is Heather Morgan. I am a life coach. I have worked with 
um, parents and individuals around disability for over 17 years. And I am a mom and I do a lot of stuff around my community in terms of advocacy and other things because, you know, why be at home when you could be busy? I mean, right? Being busy is awesome, but also sitting at home in your pajamas and hanging out is also really nice too on this wintry, blustery March day. Ah, but you see, here's my trick. I do the busy things from home and preferably from my bed. Oh, I like this plan. Yeah, you see, I make a difference in the community. I do all this stuff, but I do a lot of it, a lot of it from my bed. And uh, Wow. So I don't know if I can do a lot of the activism that I do from bed, just because for me, being in bed is like I'm in one position or two positions, and it would be hard for me to type and do a lot of stuff. So the fact that you can do that from bed is cool. Yeah. My, my disabilities mean that I can do way more the less, physically engaged my body is. So the more I'm laying back, the more that I'm um, physically resting with my feet up and everything else, the longer I have in me in a day. So so sitting up right now, like doing this, are you actually doing this interview from your bed right now? Yes, I am. Amazing, amazing. Um, But you couldn't tell, could you? No, I couldn't because it looks all fancy there. Uh Uh-huh. I like that. Um, Yep. Can you tell us kind of what your disability is and how how disability generally plays a role in your life? So answering that question takes a few minutes. You got Uh, a few minutes? I'm ready. We got time. Okay. It's all about you this hour, so we got time. (laughs) Um, I was born with a condition called club foot. So when I was born, my right foot was turned in and down. Um, So if I had tried to take steps on it, um, I would have been walking on uh, on the top of my foot. That would have been underneath of my body weight, which is like not ideal. Um, so there are actually some pretty decent treatments for clubfoot now, but whether because of my underlying issues or maybe because of medical mismanagement or something else, um, treatment for me was an absolute nightmare for it. Um, I have had 11 operations during five separate sets of interventions to get my foot to the point where I could put weight on most of it. Uh, for some periods of time um, with a lot of pain. Um, So that meant that I wore leg braces or AFOs um, from birth. I wore a Dennis Brown bar in bed for years, which is really not fun when your mom tucks you in too tight at night and you can't flip yourself over in the middle of the night. Oh, I've been there. I've been there, yeah. yeah. Some of my earliest memories didn't like it. Um, but wait, let's go back a second. They have AFOs from birth? I wore either the Dennis Brown bar or AFOs from, like, or, or casts. They my have baby life. AFOs? Because I don't... Wow. They, they make them for little, little, little ones. I know you've been to Holland Blurview. Yes. Um, I've had the majority of my AFOs made there with the amazing uh, team in the orthotics department there anyone who's listening who's like what's an afo it's an ankle foot orthotic which is a thing that a lot of disabled people especially with cp or other under other conditions would wear to they say strengthen your bones but i never really believe that it just hurt i never liked them no they i wouldn't say they have anything to do with the bones i would say that they're to like counteract um tightness and tendons and stuff and support 
and encourage your foot to stay in a position it doesn't want to stay in. Yeah, they support putting the foot in the proper position, which for a lot of us with feet stuff or CP or those of us who are in wheelchairs, putting your foot in, putting your body in any kind of proper position never feels super nice. So, and I'm no. saying I'm saying proper and I'm making the podcast popular. Yeah. No, no, I'm making it when people can hear me say pee a lot, so I'm trying to, like, not sound like I'm popping all the time. But, yeah, pro- the proper positioning for somebody with, with leg stuff never feels good. And whenever, whenever a doctor says, we need to put you in a proper position, it sucks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and between, you know, my foot not being in the proper position and trying to use AFOs, um, pain was, like, a huge part of my life growing up. Um, I did use crutches and a wheelchair a little bit in grade eight, uh, in the middle of, um, I had one of those big external fixator devices, you know, the ones where the rods go straight through the bone and out the other side. No, but ew, but tell me. Okay. So this is like extreme piercing. When my kids are like, mom, why won't you get something else pierced? I'm like, I have done the most extreme piercing imaginable and I don't need to prove that I am a badass. So... (laughs) This is this is um, used typically in like really complicated fractures and stuff for bones on the limbs. So you put uh, a metal rod straight through the bone and out the other side and you attach it to a frame and then the frame um, system is attached together with like bolts and nuts. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. This is actually how it's done. But then in my case, they decided they were going to use it to uh, straighten and reposition my leg. And so to do that, they went in and they purposely broke all of the bones oh, along the lines that they wanted to lengthen. And then they issued me with a wrench. And they told me to change the nuts by a quarter turn four times a day for four months straight, which effectively continuously rebroke my bones four times a day for four months so if you've ever broken a limb that feeling like like the day that it happens like the worst part of the pain that you have at all for the entire broken limb that was what i was doing to myself at 13 for four months straight at 13 when you want to be like cool and you want to be out with your friends and you want to like yeah last year of grade eight i was at home doing that by myself fuck so I did use a wheelchair and crutches a little bit that year, and then I used a cane through high school because uh, newsflash, it didn't work. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Um, then I will get to it later, I'm sure, but I had my kids pretty quick after high school, and so I went from using a cane to using a stroller as a walker. Oh. Peter, um, you know... So you push the kids and then it's a walker. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Because nobody gave me a walker. Um, Talk about, like, chronically not having the medical um, interventions that I needed and devices that I needed. So I, you know, improvised. Um, And the stroller was my socially acceptable walker as a Uh, (laughs) 20-year-old. Oh, my God. Cool. Cool. But um, lots of pain, lots of fatigue, lots of stress on the body. Then as an adult, I discovered that I'm on the mild end of the autism spectrum. 
So for me, this includes some learning disabilities, some areas of giftedness. Um, I have some social delays, uh, strong preference for control as a coping strategy. Hey, me too. Anxiety. Hey, I've got it. Hey, some sensory issues, which are definitely affected by my level of stress hypersensitivity to the existence of other people's emotions, which is a huge autism thing, um, and compounding that a natural propensity to try to create like rules about my own behavior based on picking up on those other people's emotions. So what you're saying is if somebody's mad at you or something, you will then try to try to uh, explain that to me. Try, so then, yeah, if somebody's mad at me, I'll like try to figure out, okay, well, they, they're probably mad. Like my, my go-to response, I've been working really hard in therapy to do better at this, but my go-to response would have been um, to assume that they, the fact that they were mad meant that they were mad at me, meant that it was my fault, meant that I had done something wrong, meant that I had to figure out what I had done wrong, meant that I had to make a rule to prevent myself from ever doing that thing wrong again. It's a, yeah, it sounds, I do that with boys. If a boy, if I'm okay. a clingy boy and I cling on to a boy too hard and they tell me they tell me they need space, I will immediately go to, I've done something wrong, I've pissed you off, I now have to create a rule to not talk to you for three or four days so that I don't, you know, make you mad again and that we can then be friends. I, so I, I, yeah. under, I understand that totally. Yeah, and, and that can lead to all sorts of problems because actually it turns out Thank you, therapy. Um, most people don't react to the thing that they say they're reacting to. Most people are actually reacting to something that has nothing to do with us. It actually has to do with them. It's probably true, but we, because the ableism is real and it's a real thing, we turn it in on ourselves because it's easier to blame the disabled exactly. person. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then finally, disabled Disability-wise, um, we now know that I have some sort of bigger genetic condition thing going on. We do not know what it is. Um, my suspicion is that it's what has was the cause of the clubfoot in the first place, um, but it affects all of the muscles in my body. So not just my foot or my legs or my arms, but it affects my torso, my diaphragm, which can affect my breathing sometimes. Um, it affects my mouth muscles, my eye out. My, my eye muscles, there's my mouth muscles going. Um, and even sometimes um, because of fatigue, um, it crosses a certain threshold and I get something called aphasia, which is um, like the brain forgets what word it's trying to say when it's talking. Um, so uh, that might be the thing I hate the most because it makes me feel all of a sudden really dumb and stupid and I like I, I kind of trade on the fact that my brain still works and I'm pretty good with words yeah so like that's sort of my com compensation for like all of my other disabilities so when that one kicks in I'm like oh no yeah because no, no, you so can society unfortunately society assumes that anybody who has an intellectual disability and can't speak and talk with themselves must be stupid which is you know, unfortunately, that that feeds into a lot of our internalized ableism. I felt that way too as a kid all the time, when I would do, when I would get a wrong answer in school, when something, when I wouldn't know something or I wouldn't say something right, I would immediately feel the urge to correct it because I had to be, because 
language and, and words were the only thing I really had that was really accessible to me. So if I did it wrong, it's, then I was stupid. Yeah, which sucks. We don't need that kind of stress in our lives. No, that stress is like the worst. Um, you also mentioned... And you, you, you asked what, what it looks like in my day-to-day life. Yeah, please tell um, me. So at this point, um, I can stand. And I can take a few steps over the course of the day. Jealous. But I, if you meet me in public, I will be in a tilt and recline wheelchair. Um, and if not, I will probably be in bed um, because that's even better for me than the wheelchair. But like without the wheelchair, I, I'm stuck in bed. Like there's just nothing for it um, because we don't know the diagnosis. We don't know the prognosis. Um, it has definitely gotten worse over the last eight years fairly consistently. Um, so we don't know what the trajectory of that's going to be. And uh, without a diagnosis, there is no treatment, um, except whatever I work out for myself based on trial and error. Like uh, if I stay in bed more of the time, then I can function better. What are some of your feelings around having an undiagnosed diabetes? Like how does that make you feel? I think that the, most of the feelings about it center around feeling very dismissed. So um, the the medical system doesn't deal well with a lack of diagnosis. If you show up at the doctor's office and you're like, I don't feel well and I can't walk and I can't function and I feel like vomiting all the time, um, and they run all their tests and they can't say, oh, it's this thing that we know all about, um, then their default is to assume that it is a psychological condition. So their default is to, again, put it on you, sort of. Yes. And say, like, it's you in your head making it up and all those things. Yeah. And um, I have been fortunate enough to be stubborn enough and to run across a few really good healthcare providers, um, including a couple of therapists who have very much reassured me that this is not in my head. Um, but uh, I've been to dozens and dozens of doctors over the last few years. I've had treatment plans suggested that actually made my condition worse rather oh, than no. better because they were so convinced that it was psychosomatic. Um, and uh, it really sort of once we realized that my kids also had it. Um, even that wasn't enough of a like indicator that this wasn't psychosomatic. Like all three of us have had the same um, dismissal, and all three of us had, have had to fight really, really hard to. They wouldn't have put. They wouldn't have made a connection. Like, hey, your kids have it too. Maybe like I immediately am like my my non hospital brain is like okay so maybe it's genetic maybe it's this like maybe it's I'm you think <laughs> you think but we don't show up on any of their lovely tests and they don't know an answer for it um so do you ever that, feel like they could know an answer they just tried harder do you feel like the medical uh, system is like because we hear a lot of time about people who are undiagnosed talking about how they feel the medical system is lazy they're not doing enough do you get that sense i feel like there's two issues one is an individual issue and one is a systemic issue. The individual issue is that I don't think doctors are taught to be curious and humble enough 
So I don't think that they, I don't think that they're emotionally comfortable with the idea of saying, I don't know the answer. Yeah, because they're a doctor and they're wearing the white coat and they're supposed to know the answer. Yeah. So I think that that's like an underlying person, like person to person specific issue. But then I think system systemically, we have this system whereby if, if I work my way through the system and I find this like specialist of all specialists, right? And they're going to diagnose me with this thing that somebody down the road, you know, thought that I had. I get to that specialist and they run their very specific test. And their very specific test doesn't show up something super, super clear. Their focus is so narrow um, that they don't then know what else it could be. And so what happens is that that very, very, very special sends me back to my nurse practitioner, who is my family physician because it's Ontario and we don't have enough family physicians. So I go back to a nurse oh, practitioner. Oh, wow. You don't have a doctor? You have a nurse practitioner? And that nurse practitioner then has to start the process all over again. And with wait times and everything else, this this stretches out the process indefinitely. Um, and I think it ends up costing our system like tens of thousands of dollars more than it should. Um, so we recently managed to get my eldest into a clinic um, that I had been into and seen another doctor at like a year earlier. And this particular doctor was actually curious. Um, and this particular doctor actually looked at like my eldest results and my results and was like, oh, wait a second. There's something that wasn't in any of the referral notes. In the referral notes, it all says that all of your test results were normal. But when I look at this test result you had done in our clinic and this test result your eldest had done, um, they're not actually normal. They're like subclinical. So they're not in the like the red flag zone. And so information gets lost when it goes all the way back to the nurse practitioner because all it says is, you know, here's the note. It says that you're within normal ranges. And that's all the nurse practitioner has to work with. Yeah. But then information is getting lost. The tests get repeated and um, things get missed and you don't ever have a chance to have somebody sit there and look at the big picture. And I think we need, like, if, if a specialist can't find an answer after, like, two or three specialists, I think we need specialists who have big picture glasses, you know, kind of the safe, same Dr. House equivalent. Yeah, I was to just going to say, like, Dr. House. Yeah, except they don't want to almost die three times in the process. <laughs> yeah, fair, right? fair, fair. So, I, I, that's, yeah, those are my emotions about undiagnosed, is mostly it, how it comes down to feeling dismissed. This is, this is real, and it shouldn't take this much work just to have somebody believe me. No, of course not. And I, like, I'm too tired for that. <laughs> And I think we found, unless you say something awesome in the next hour, which I'm sure you will, but I think we found the title for this episode because it's real, that's powerful. And I, I might I might think about that as the quote for the show. Uh, but I want to ask you another question about your, your your undiagnosed disability. How do you think, if they, if they came to you one day and said, Heather, we think we found a diagnosis and we think we know what it is, how do you think you would celebrate getting a diagnosis? Because so many of us who have 
undiagnosed disabilities want that diagnosis so hard and to get it would be a celebration how would you celebrate what would you do to when they come to you and say we have this how will you celebrate uh we have talked about this we have planned a diagnosis reveal party (laughs) okay i'm listening so i'm thinking like some pinatas maybe write out every single diagnosis that has ever been proposed for me and play like pin the tail on the diagnosis to see who can get closest to the right answer. Oh my God, I love that you so know, much. Like bobbing for diagnoses with some apples in a big bin. Like, I don't know, man. It's bobbing have for to diagnoses. Yes. Yeah, please. And invite me to this part. I... <laughs> but I think that's a great idea because like we, I think these things should be celebrated and played with and there should be parties and there should be, I have a friend in Ontario, Kate, who makes cards called Crip Care Cards, I think they're called, and she makes them for people who have chronic illnesses and disabilities, and cards like, hey, sorry you couldn't come to the event today because of whatever, but we still love you and you're important, like, cards like that, so I think... Oh my goodness, that's awesome! I know! So, but I think celebrating this stuff should be so... Celebrating diagnoses should be a thing, and we should... There should be... I, I like the diagnosis reveal party. I'm, I'm there for that. Very good, very good. If if it happens after our our new accessible house is built, uh, there is actually a fully accessible route from where where you live to where I live, and the house is house will be fully accessible, and we can just jam down on that. Wow, that's amazing! I'm 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 signing up. Um, I want to move into in your questionnaire. You talked about something really interesting that I really wanted to touch on. You talked about growing up in a religious purity culture. Um, and when I read that, I was like, oh, questions about religion. Okay. Um, because religion is not a thing that I, that I personally ascribe to, although if anybody, if anybody listening does, I'm, I'm happy if that works for you. Can you talk to me about how religion played a role in, in your understanding of disability, if it did at all growing up? Uh, it definitely did. Um, so growing up in a religious purity culture affected the way that I saw disability, um, and sex. But more fundamentally, it shaped the way I saw and interacted with my body and with my emotions. Um, and as a disabled person, that's really, really problematic. Yeah. So um, that world that I grew up in talked about a lot about separating like the mind in quotes, um, which they thought was the most fabulous thing in the world from the emotions and from the body. So it turns out this isn't actually like a. Uh, Christian concept, it comes from an ancient Greek school of thought called Gnosticism, um, and it was one of Plato's big things, and the best way I understand it, and I'm probably going to get this wrong so all the philosophy listeners can like write in and complain, but don't be too mean to me because I'm trying. Um, <laughs> but the way I understand it uh, was that there was this like perfect ideal of a thing that we should aspire to. So, like, the thing in front of us, the table, the chair, the people, everything, they're just, like, poor replicas of what was really real, uh, which was based purely in what could be intellectually known. So, like, the perfect ideal of a table that you could imagine was far more real to them than, like, the actual table that you could put your laptop on, which seems really kind of... Okay, what was the... Problematic. Yeah. So, what was the real table in front of them then? That... I, that beats me, man. 
<laughs> this is why. This is why I'm like, I just don't get it. Like, so would they would they imagine? Okay, so the real tape was in front of them. Would they imagine like that it was way cooler than it was, or what? I I don't know. What I know is how this translated into my growing up life, which was like the mind, the way that the mind could think about things and the way that the mind could understand things, that was the thing that mattered. The words you said and the thoughts you thought, that was all that mattered. Um, And so, like, one organization that my family was connected with actually took this great big philosophical thought structure and put it into this little diagram that they used frequently that showed the mind as the engine of the train with the emotions as the caboose. But the body wasn't even on the train. Wow, that would fuck up anybody, but especially if you're disabled. Especially if you're disabled. Like, you're... Wow. So, for my brain, like many people on the autism spectrum, if you give me a bunch of rules and tell me that it's very important that I follow them or bad things will happen, my default is to say, okay, you must know what you're talking about and then do my best to follow them okay which in fact it turns out i'm very good at which meant that among other things i did a really good job of disconnecting from my body so things like pain and discomfort were things that my family did not really want to hear me talk about or at least i felt like they didn't want me to talk about them so i just didn't And as a result, many things happened to me medically that shouldn't have. My pain wasn't managed well at all. Um, I often had the feeling that, like, we were just supposed to pray about things and that was going to make them better. Um, But that kind of dismissal of real physiological realities came at a really big cost. Um, including like muscle spasms that were allowed to continue for so long that there was permanent damage to my toes as a result of it. Um, Yeah, like like really, really big costs, but also like that continuous chronic cost of always being in pain. So like I'm a little bit, sometimes I'm like, do I have autism or did I just have so much pain in my childhood that I have a whole bunch of social delays because of that? Because, like, it was, it, I was constantly at, like, a six to eight on the pain scale as a child. As a, like, oh, God. Like, I can't remember not being a but, six but to eight But because the of the scale. religious purity culture, you kind of had to, you didn't, couldn't talk about it. I didn't feel like I could talk about it. Like, I don't think it was ever, like, you must not talk about this. I think it was that whole thing we were talking about with the autism, with the, like, intuiting things and picking up on things and then making rules about them. Yeah. But, like, people didn't like it if you talked about pain. And they made all sorts of ableist comments like, oh, you know, we'll just pray and God will heal you and crap like that. And the way that I understood it in my little kid, vulnerable brain was, You can't talk about this because otherwise people feel really uncomfortable and they don't like it. And so you can't say anything about it. And so it meant that I wasn't honest about my pain levels. And that meant that I didn't have the mobility devices I needed. I didn't have the pain management I needed. It was like a huge mess. (laughs) Shit. 
Um, how do you feel about now that you're older and kind of moved? I don't want to say past, but you moved through that. How do you feel about religious stuff now and disability? Um, I will tell you the answer to that, but I want to tell you one other piece of all of this. Sure. Because it's not just the disability, it's also the sexuality. And this is your podcast, so I figured we should include that. Perfect. Yes, we should. Yes, we should. Um, so I hit puberty really early, like breast budding around eight years old. Um, and I realized really, really quickly that pubescent bodies were things to be ashamed of. And that specifically women's developing bodies made men really, really uncomfortable. And so I wore big baggy clothes to try to hide it. And I really clamped down on any awareness of my own sexuality. So much so that when I got married, although I knew all the basic like anatomical processes, I had no idea that sex could be a positive thing for a woman at all. I actually thought it was simply something you did to either have children, which of course you wanted, that was assumed, or to look after your husband's needs. Isn't that Oh, wow. Awful? Yeah. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, like, certainly had no idea that I was queer, um, you know, hadn't ever experienced my own sexuality for myself, um, hadn't, like, like, I took their rules to the nth degree. So this is where, like, the disability and the sex and the religious purity culture all, like, Intersect. like storm of intersections. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one out there who's had that experience. Um, there are a lot of people in the sort of coming out of the same world that I grew up in who have talked a lot about purity culture and its implications on their sexuality. But I don't know anybody who's talking about it in terms of their disability and their sexuality and how those two things intersected with purity culture. So to answer your other question, though, um, I am still actually quite active in my faith, but that faith has shifted a long way away from the purity culture that I grew up in. So, like, as a kid, I would have told you I was a Christian. I would still tell you I was a Christian, but I would mean, like, two totally different things. Yeah. And my current understanding of disability is actually very much shaped by disabled theologians. Um, like, there's this woman named Nancy Island who wrote a fascinating book called The Disabled God. And um, she and others have carried on her work and have done really amazing things to reclaim and explore like a very progressive, very positive understanding of disability for those in the Christian faith. Wow, that's really uh, cool. Because usually, you know, everything that I learn about religion and, and disability is that, like, I don't want to be part of that because religion is going to make me, going to try to save me from my disability. And so it's, it's interesting to hear that people are taking the discussion of faith and, and putting disability into that in a way that is it's more realistic than like, let's save you from the horribleness of disability. Yeah. So like my faith community today, I am like beyond fortunate in, but um, not only is my disability accepted, but it's supported and my perspective as a disabled person is valued and sought after. Um, I have the chance to not only participate as a member of the community, but to speak and to lead. And my experience of body and emotions is valued highly 
in the community in part because of my disability and because of my experiences. And actually, that's not just true for me. Every single person who has given a sermon at our church in the last year has had either a mental health issue, a physical health disability, or they are somewhere on the ADHD autism spectrum. That's, I mean, that's great. That really, like, it's like I, I'm never going to be a religious person myself, but I, I support that that's something that people yeah. are doing because it's changing the narrative. Well, and, and there are people who, who want that and it should be available yeah, for them. Yeah, totally. And it's, that's not the same as saying that everyone has to have it. But no, for me, but to put it's it in, for me, it's been like incredibly healing to have a way of engaging um, with faith in a way that like, um, that doesn't really devalue your body. Yeah. And values. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. And I, I'm really happy to hear that because to be honest with you, my view of religion and disability was super dark and, and that I'm glad that there are people out there trying, trying to shift that narrative. Um, I wanted to shift to, you talked to me about in your questionnaire about getting married to the first person you ever dated at 19 which is like, holy, yep. wow, holy shit. Yep. Uh, and you also talk about that your husband has autism. So I'd love for you to share with us how having a partner with a completely different set of disabilities, what, wait, did you mention in your questionnaire you had autism? Or did I just not read it? I don't remember whether I did or not, but. Okay, because. I don't know. Because you've talked, you've talked a little bit now about having autism, so I, I've said, oh, a completely different set of disabilities than yours, maybe not. It's still a good question, though. It's still a good question. So um, when Trevor and I got married almost 21 years ago, uh, we had no idea that either of us were as disabled as we actually are. I had spent my teen years, um, you know, walking with a cane and all that stuff we've already talked about, but um, I was doing relatively well. Like, sort of my best years were, like, two years before I got married and a year after I got married physically. Um, and Trevor grew up in England in the eighties and nineties when no one had ever really heard on of like quote unquote high functioning autism. I hate the term, but just like if you weren't like, like characteristically nonverbal and autistic, autistic yeah. nonverbal, then nobody knew what to think of it. So on top of that, when we got married, Trevor was also a brand new immigrant to Canada. Um, so that brings its own complications. Yeah. So, like, we met in Belgium when I was 16. We had dated mostly by email with a few months spent visiting one another. Oh, over the course that's so of the cute. No. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually arrived in Canada 12 days before we got married. Shit. But because of immigration laws and stuff, if he wanted to ha be able to stay in the country, we needed to get married fairly directly so that he could apply for landed immigrant status, which we couldn't do unless we were married. There was all this stuff. So when we got married, there was a lot of new already, uh, as you can imagine, like 23-year-old, almost 20-year-old, no clue what they're doing, setting up house for the first time. Like we kind of felt like we were playing house, and right? You probably were. Yeah, basically. Um, like neither one of us had ever assembled pack flat furniture before. So like, how could we adult? Oh shit. 
Um, and if you know anything about autism, you'll know that we don't like new. Right? Oh, so I, this is like I, lots I and lots of new. A, I didn't know that was a part of it, but well, it makes sense. So I've talked to people with autism. It totally makes sense. Yeah. Yep. And just to make that a little bit more interesting, we had a bunch more new happen in quick succession. So Trevor had to find his first job in Canada. I got pregnant five months later. Shit. I finished university a year after that. We somehow bought a, our first house. We had a second child who passed away at three weeks of age. And then we had a third child 17 months later. So you're starting to like notice the layers of new. Yeah, there's a whole lot of new happening all at once. Wow. And then grief too with, oh, wow, the, all yeah. the. Yeah. And then in the middle of all of that, we were trying to figure out our relationship. We had this whole deconstruction, reconstruction, faith journey going on in terms of leaving that purity culture environment that we had met in. And then in the middle of all that, like uh, trying to figure out how we did sex, <laughs> which wasn't an automatic success because of all that religious purity culture. Yeah, of course. Um. So it wasn't until our youngest was nine, that was seven years ago, that we finally figured out that she had autism. Uncovering that led us to realizing that Trevor had autism, that our eldest had autism, that I had autism. Wow. Um, initially, I was really annoyed at finding out that Trevor had autism. This was still before I was using a wheelchair or my disabilities had become so critical, but it wasn't before they existed. And so it felt like this was going to end up with like him having this excuse to never learn how to do the things I still like was hoping he would someday figure out how to do because I was like dying inside trying to take care of everything. So there was a big uh, stress because you were the more able one in that you in that you didn't really have you weren't using the chair yet you could still do stuff and he was autistic but now he was gonna you were afraid as his partner that he was gonna use it as an excuse yeah and I was I think I was deep down like seriously jealous because at that point I had never really given myself the chance to acknowledge that I was a disabled person um, oh, wow. I've That's... never given myself much of a pass on anything because of it. Like, like if, if everyone else was doing it, I was just going to figure out a way to do it. Um, and I hadn't realized that I was also on the spectrum. So it didn't feel fair that he should get a pass and support from me when I wasn't getting a lot of that from anyone else, even though it had a lot to do with me not letting on that I needed the help. I love this. I, I don't love it, but I love the, this uh, this different spin on like jealousy and like we don't hear that like no one is usually jealous that I have a disability. I'm getting support. Like, oh, Andrew, I have been jealous of people in wheel having wheelchairs for my entire life. Oh my god, let's talk about I that. I cannot let's think of a time when I wasn't jealous of somebody's wheelchair. Like, in in I've been working with a therapist mostly because of the whole psychosomatic dumbness. And if I work with a therapist, then I have someone to back me up when doctors are dumb. Um, but one of the things she asked me once was, so at what point do you think you should have had a wheelchair first? Because we were talking about the fact that like I wasn't good at explaining that I needed them and things. And I thought back 
and I thought back and I thought back and she talks a lot about the fact that like our jealousies tell us something about things we actually need. Wow. That we can use them to like help ourselves understand our deeper motivations and longings and needs, especially for the type of people that are uh, default is to repress our emotions. Yep. So um, I I thought back to the point when I had first seen a person in a wheelchair and wished I had one and thought it wasn't fair that they got one. And I was five. <laughs> but how do you know that it's not you just being a kid being like, I want to be able to roll around in a chair? Like, because, because I always looked at them and thought if I was in that, I wouldn't be in pain. Oh, deep. Wow. At five, you thought that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And like, like also with the wheelchair, like the acknowledgement that there was a disability and the supports for disability, like. And you knew this at a, you knew this, you knew it at five. Yeah. And, and, And not that I'm under any like false ideas of the level of support that people with disabilities actually get now. But at the time I thought, Oh, if I, if I knew if people knew that I had a disability, then, you know, they would wait for me or they wouldn't expect me to try to run in gym class or. So if I had, if I had a marker of disability, i.e. a wheelchair, then I would look disabled enough to get the support I need to feel out of pain. I get it. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. That's a, wow, that's a lot to unpack at five. <laughs> wow. Um, I didn't get that. I just got as far as, ooh, I wish I had one of those. Yeah, like most five-year-olds when they see a chair, they, ooh, I wish, but there was so much going on underneath all that, which is really neat to unpack now. Um, <laughs> does your, did having, you know, a partner with autism and a different level of disability than you did at the time, did it... Or has it changed your view on disability as a disabled person? Um, I think I think where we've gotten to at this point as a couple is is a, is a really robust, like really complex view of disability. Like we we understand that it's more complicated than um, you know, just a wheelchair or just this thing or just that thing that the disability it it affects every way that we see and interact with the world right like yeah you can't you can't separate it out you can't be like okay i just want you to put your disability on the on the shelf for a minute because i need you for me right now like you can't do that it's not it's not an option um but understanding our disabilities has been the first step to being able to take agency over what comes next. So I think there's like this, this two way street of like, like the, the disabilities are really real. Um, Pretending that they were, weren't real didn't help us out any acknowledging that they were real was like pivotal moment. But in that moment, what I thought I was doing was I thought I was like consigning us to like, this is the best it can ever get. And instead, what we've realized over the last seven years is that, like, admitting that you have a disability is the first step to going from, like, just surviving to thriving. It's true. That um, 
like once we knew that our kids and and us had autism, we could start to use strategies to change the way that we interacted. And so like our interactions as a family have improved like hundredfold. Um, the way that we deal with conflict as a family has improved significantly. Um, the way that we like... Would you say you're a disabled family then? I mean, is that... Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single person in our family is multiply disabled. That's so much. That's so much to un- like. There's so much to deal with there, but also there's something kind of beautiful about that because we don't hear about families that have multiple disabilities. We hear no, and they they clearly don't plan for it because, like, for instance, if I go down to Toronto with my kids, all three of us, we can fit all three of our wheelchairs on the go train, which is really awesome. We can all travel on the same carriage, but that's yeah. the go train. And that is not true on like any other train in the country or, the, or a bus the, anywhere. Yeah. Um, when we get to Toronto, if we take the subway and it's not rush hour, then sometimes we can fit all three wheelchairs onto the same subway car. Sometimes not. It depends. It's, rare. it's very rare. It's very rare. There's no way to get more than two of us on a bus at the same time. Nope. So like nobody's ever thinking about this, and I, like I've I frequently thought like if my kids had gotten to the point where they needed wheelchairs younger, age wise, like there's an age at which you're happy to have your kids take the subway and the bus by themselves, and there's an age when you're not. So like what would have happened if it was me and my two kids all in power chairs with my kids like age six and nine? Yeah, there's it just wouldn't have, <laughs> it just would not have happened. No. It couldn't. No. So, like, do you think, just to kind of piggyback off on that question, do you think that, like, do you think, what do you think we as a society need to do to plan better for families with people with multiple disabilities? Like, how do you, what kind of, other than the government throwing tons of money behind that, which they never will do, but if there was, like, some way to say to family planning centers, like, hey, you might have families with multiple disabilities. Here's what I think you should do. So I think it's one of those awareness things as a first step, like just introducing the idea that there are families with disabilities. So I oh, it's going to be our, a tweet on my Twitter. It's going to be a, a tweet yeah. on my Twitter right after this. Because I'm like, I, I, didn't, I haven't thought about it so deeply until right now, but you're right. Right? So like I sit on our city's accessibility advisory committee, and one of the things I push for is for um, multiple options for wheelchair configuration on our city buses. Yeah. Um, Please come to Toronto and like get them to do that here because, oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, One of the things um, pushing for is, um, like, I've, I've been working with the Ontario College of Midwives um, pushing for a greater understanding of disability and pregnancy um, because that's a huge issue because people don't assume that, you know, if you're disabled that you're going to have kids um, and that those kids themselves might be disabled. So, like, how do we provide supports around that? Um, and I do that because I'm a high-risk doula by training as well as everything else. Oh, wow. I don't 
practice as a high-risk doula anymore because I don't have the physical capacity to do it, but like I draw on years of experience from that. Right. Um, so working with some other disabled, mm, multiply disabled uh, family member families um, with who the mom is also a doula. So working with some, some other folks to just sort of like raise awareness around that. Um, and then I just talk a lot about our reality and I can't, that means I can't just talk about one thing. So like, you know, one day it's, um, the fact that we have been waiting for over 11 months for my daughter to get a power wheelchair that fits her so that she can go to school for more than three hours a day, three times a week at 16. Um, oh God, it's but 16 then, schools your life. Like all the drama right? is happening. You got to be in school for all the drama. <laughs> and she's missing all of it. It sucks. Um, and, but then the next day, then I might be talking about the way like joining works with um, a child or an adult who is um, sometimes nonverbal. So how do you interact with that? And then sometimes I'm talking about like, so there's all of these, I think a lot of it is just building awareness of the reality. And that disability doesn't affect just one family member. It can affect, I just think I love it because we don't hear about it often. And, and thank you so much for sharing that with us and me. Cause I, I, I knew it was out there, but I never really talked to somebody who had, who was disabled <laughs> and had multiple kids with disabilities. And like, it's a, it's a lot to, even wrap my head around and I'm a disability activist and even I'm going, wow, how do you, like, how does all the, wow, wow. So thank you for being so open about it. I want to shift back to, to your relationship with your partner for a minute though. Um, yeah. Uh, my question was, do, well, I can actually turn this into a family question. Do, and you kind of answered this already, but I'll ask it again. Do all of your disabilities play a role in your relationship dynamic as a family? Absolutely, yes. Um, having anyone in a family with a disability affects the dynamic because, first of all, that fam that person likely requires some extra supports that we don't normally think of in the relationship dynamic. Um, so, like, you know, usually we don't think about needing to, um, you know, make your 16 year old a sandwich because usually the 16 year old can make themselves a sandwich. Um, but if the 16 year old can't get out of bed because they don't have the right wheelchair, then they do need you to make a sandwich for them. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, maybe it's help with personal care or help with emotional regulation or help physically navigating a space or, or help all with of those executive things together. Functioning, or all of them together. But then secondly, being, being disabled and then navigating an able-bodied world as a disabled person is tiring. So my therapist, again, she's just getting all the shout outs here. She taught me that when we think about our sort of threshold for stress, we often think of it as having separate tanks. Like you have a pain tank or a fatigue tank or a stressors tank, but it's not like that. Everything's lumped in together. So for me, my pain now that I use a wheelchair is usually at like a three to five out of 10. That's taking up like three to five stressor points in my capacity to cope with life, even before I get out of bed or deal with laundry or try to convince exhausted disabled teenagers that it's time to catch the school bus or whatever. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it totally does. So then when you have multiple multiple people with disabilities in a family, including your partner, then there's no one there with a full tank to just be able to pick up the slack. So we kind of sink or swim by leaning just enough on one another that we stay upright without leaning so much on the other person that we knock them over. So it's a really delicate balance, balancing, balancing act of like, how the hell do we do this without knocking the whole ship down? Yeah. So because you asked me this question in advance and I thought about it, I have like four ways that I think we see this. I'm ready. Um, number one would be energy capacity. Uh, because being autistic and working full-time at a high-stress job in Toronto means my husband is having to work very hard to pass as neurotypical a lot of the time during the day. Um, and I have an energy condition, but like to pretend that I'm still capable of many things myself. Um, that leaves the two of us both exhausted and wishing the other person could just take care of us at the end of the day. The same is true for my kids. The apples did not fall far from the tree there. Um... So that must like that must be really stressful. Each of you are, are seeking support, and all of you are trying to do the best to give each other those supports. But it's like, do you have like home care coming in? Do you have any any like respite from being? We, we have because of my daughter's autism diagnosis, she gets one form of autism funding. Um, and don't even get me started on like the way that the government funds autism in a way that it doesn't doesn't. fund any other disability because I just have no time for any of the way that the government funds disabilities. But um, I use that funding entirely for um, housekeeping because that is one of the things that it's allowed for. Um, And so we have somebody who comes in and... Isn't it gross that, like, isn't it disgusting that the funding that the government gives us is allowed for certain things? You don't get to decide what it's actually allowed for as, you know the matriarch of your house to get to the, to get to fucking no. decide like ew it makes you so mad no. because like what if you wanted to use that money for a rainy day fund to take your autistic kid to I don't know a concert or something because you're her mom hey friends it's Andrew here this is the weird part of the audio where the audio died because the amp that I'm using did a weird thing so we lost part of the audio and we had to hit record again, so we do that, and then we jump right back into the combo. So enjoy the next second half of this combo, right now on Disability After Dark. Hey friends, so in the middle of our conversation, my audio fucked up, and so we're recording it again. We were just in the middle of talking about how, Heather, the supports for your daughter this is the governmental supports for your daughter with autism or crap, and uh, and you know you can't you're not able you're only able to use them for things like housekeeping, but you can't use them for things like taking your daughter on a cool trip or doing cool things like that. And you were in the middle of telling me something cool of the Mario drop, so please tell me again. I was just saying that like the really big thing that my daughter needs is a bunch of medical equipment, and none of that counts. So the closest I can get to that is I can buy her either a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop. Um, or what if with, she needs what? Right? What? You, you got that. Wow. But doesn't yeah. the laptop goes together with the, ta- with the tablet and the smartphone? I, ha- yeah, I am I'm not, I'm not a person with autism and I, I need all three things. So what? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. So, yeah. 
Um, and that probably goes into like the second point I had in terms of the reality of being a disabled family is the huge strain on finances. Oh yeah. So I completely own that we are pretty privileged as disabled folks go in that um, my husband can work and works at a pretty good job and has benefits. But being disabled is really expensive. And having four people in the family with a disability with one in university is a lot. It's a, so, it's a, it sounds like a fuck ton. Yeah. And between everyone's disabilities, I've had to be very sparing in how much I've worked over the last 20 years. So I'm just now... In order to get the supports for everybody, because if you work too much, right? Because if you work too much, then you don't get enough support. It's more that it just takes so much time to take everybody to doctor's appointments, to coordinate care with, uh, like, occupational therapists and physiotherapists, to follow up on... Um, funding applications to file insurance claims to like everything takes time and um, like a lot of the we've taken in terms of autism therapy we we are not ABA people um, which means that we've had to come up with our own therapeutic interventions if we wanted our kids and ourselves to be able to thrive and do our best. And so I've spent like literally hours almost every day of the last 20 years doing therapy for myself and my family. Jesus, fuck, fuck. Um, so it's hard to work full time when you're doing. Yeah, no, of course you need to, because you're the one providing all the supports in a way that the government and other people don't provide it. So you it, I can imagine that's really stressful. Um, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned a lot in the work you do and a lot in like what you've just talking with me over the last hour. You've said the word thrive a lot. So I'm curious. Um, first of all, what is, how, what is the difference between surviving and thriving for you as a disabled person? And like, what does that mean for you? And can you like elaborate on, on just because you've mentioned it like four or five times in just our conversation today. So I'm just curious, like, what does it mean for you? And like, why is it important? And how do you think other disabled people can thrive? So I think that a lot of us are sort of like, if left to our own devices, the way that the government does and the medical system does, I think a lot of us are just trying to survive. Um, the income issues are a huge survival issue area. Um, you know, being able to access nutritious food um, is a huge issue, but also things like having the emotional supports to self-regulate well, um, having the educational supports to learn all of the little tiny steps that are needed to be able to function in society are lacking. Um, so surviving for me is like, you know, you're alive, you know, you're not dying today. So awesome. But to me, surviving isn't enough. I have this crazy idea that our, we have, I don't know, that right is the right word. Um, although that's like part of it, but like we are capable of, of more than just surviving. 
there's this this better not, not way. only are not only are we capable as disabled people of just more than surviving we deserve more yeah. than just survival we deserve to be that's why i got so pissed off when we were talking a minute ago about how you can't use the supports that you get to decide what the fuck you want to do with them like if, if you can't use a pot of money that is technically for you to do whatever you really want with because when it's in your hand, it's not like the government is technically watching you do anything with it. So you could technically do that, but because of the way the the supports are doled out, you're treated like shit the minute you d- dare do something frivolous with it. Yeah, or even something as simple as like, like we don't build accessible housing as a general rule. Um, and that means that, like, I don't know how many Canadians are living in homes where they can't function. I'm living in a home where can't... I can't function. I'm living in a in a accessible apartment in Toronto that I cannot access. Let's talk about like I, if I wanted to yeah. get a, if I wanted to get a drink for myself right now from my cabinet, I can't do it. I can't reach the faucet. I can't. So yeah, I, <laughs> many of us that are living in quote unquote accessible housing are not actually, cannot access no. anything. So I get it. No, no. And, and so to me, like, like, that's not, that's not living. I want more than, I'm crazy enough to want more than that for me, for my family, for disabled people across the country. Um, and like, I'm super, super committed to fighting for that. So if something if something is only getting us to like, like just barely hanging on, I'm like, that's crap. I want, I want something better than that. I want a future for my kids where they can feel like they're participating in society in a way that is meaningful for them and where they can live and in a way that supports them in terms of like having community and having uh, the capacity to eat well and, you know, stay clean and all of these things that most people take as like a basic, take as a basic human for right. granted thing. Yeah. That they don't even think about yeah. that. We have to think about consistently. Um, yeah. there's a lot, I, I, I could sit and talk to you about thriving and thriving for like another hour and a half. Cause it really got me thinking about stuff, but I want to move to, cause it, because this is a sex podcast. I want yeah. to move to the sexier discussion we're going to have today. And I'd love for you to talk to me about some of your experiences with sex and disability. Tell me about some of the challenges, how it's been tough, and tell me about some of the good times you've been sexually active with partners as a disabled person. <coughs> so challenges um, are definitely like muscle weakness. Um, the way that sex drive is specifically related to energy levels and fatigue, which sucks. Um, The fact that my skin irritates really easily everywhere. Um, And did I mention the fact that my muscle weakness includes my mouth? Yeah, so I was gonna yeah. go there. I'm glad you opened the door there because now I can go right on through. So, so that <laughs> I would assume then that that makes oral sex <laughs> challenging for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm told that I used to be really, really good at it, but um, uh, I can do most muscle activities for a very short period of time. But 
very short period of time in this particular case is like 10 to 15 seconds now. Which, you know, as might not be as satisfying as somebody wanted. Which, you know, I mean, I'm all for I'm all for a quickie, but that's like I don't know if a micro quickie is a thing that I'm into. So I can see how for, for I, I can also see how for you, given that you've been indoctrinated since you were young with this idea of like having to do the right thing and doing the best and being so like I can imagine that being unable to give a really solid blowjob to your partner because of your muscle weakness is correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine it would be make you feel really sad or bad about yourself. Yeah, well, I mean, after I got over the fact that that world also didn't believe in blowjobs. Um, uh, so, I, like, layers layers of process here. Yeah, so many like, layers. The first was, you know, we had to get over the idea of um, blowjobs as a valid expression of sexuality. And then, you know, and, and that was part of, like, this bigger process of um, having to deal with all of those layers of trauma um, and then like discovering that I was queer and my husband realizing that he was gender fluid and uh, all these other things and the way oh, that yeah that, like, you mentioned that in your questionnaire I didn't even created like dissociation and triggering and all sorts of other messy things in our marriage so like it wasn't just the getting over the like I need to please him part but there was like all this other stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, having gotten to the point where I realized that, hey, I, not only was this a thing you could do, but this was a thing that uh, made people very happy and um, that I was actually apparently quite good at, um, to then realize that I could no longer do it, I was like, no, that's not fair. Because like, if it weren't for the muscle, the mouth muscle thing, like all the rest of my body, you, you can stay pretty like inert whilst giving yeah. a blowjob if you position everything right. I really enjoy that you just use the word inert and then in quick succession you use the word whilst and then you use the word blowjob. This is why I'm glad we're talking right now because it was just it made me smile. Good, good. I hope that could make your Friday morning a little more happy. It really did. <laughs> but but yeah, like it was uh, I think that's like if I could if I could exclude two muscle groups from this condition, it would be my mouth muscles for that reason and because I like to talk. And it would be my eyes because it freaks the hell out of me to think about being a wheelchair user and not being able to see because then I'd have to have somebody push me around all the time. Yeah. And that would not make me happy. So like everything else can go. <laughs> but like I want those two sets of muscles back. Yes, yes. Figure yeah. it out, somebody. Help yeah, Heather exactly. give her partner better blowjobs. Please. That she Please. can enjoy and that they can enjoy also. Um, so so we talked about some of the challenges of your sex life. Let's talk about some of the triumphs. Like what part of being a disabled person and having sex with a, another disabled person, what, what parts of that make sex better for you? Um... If they do, I think I think that it forces us to communicate way more than most people would have to communicate, and communication um, does actually make for better sex long term. 
Say it louder for people in the back, just in case we all forget. Communication makes sex better for all of us in the long term if we can work up the courage to do it. Yes. But being disabled forces you to. You don't have a choice. If you try, tried and tested here, 21 years of marriage, if you try to skip the communication, it will go to pot. It will end very, very badly. Very, very badly. Yeah, of course. How yeah. does, how, now, given that you both, you've, you've expressed that you both have autism and you both have, have disabilities that make communication different for both of you, how does the, how does your communication in, like, a sexual moment have to be different than we might think? Um, so, I'm going to tell you what we've found that works. I'm going to skip all of the things we tried that didn't work. How's that, just for time? I mean, I got time. We, we Go, go. <laughs> okay, so, things that don't work. Um, rushing doesn't work. Um, hoping that the other person will guess what you want because you're giving, like, little subtle cues doesn't work. Um, because of the autism, they can't figure, they can't pick up on the subtle cues, so you have to be very no. direct. Yeah. Um, suddenly dumping something that you've been thinking about inside of your head for four years and been scared to say anything about on your partner mid-sex, bad idea. That, that's not the time. <laughs> don't do that to your partner, whether you're autistic or not, friends. Don't. No, no, just that's don't not the time. That. It is not the time. Um, things that do work, having conversations about sex outside of the bedroom. Yes. Beforehand. Yes. Um, Storyboarding your sex. I've talked about this for three bloody years on the show. Storyboarding your sex, friends. It works for everyone. Such a good idea. It's such a good disability hack. Such a good everybody hack. Um, taking time to like, like write the storyboard ahead of time, but then like tell the story and then tell the story again as you're doing it so that you know where you're at in the story. Can you like, so now I'm, so, like, is it like, so now I'm going to touch your thigh with my hand and then I'm going to go. It doesn't have to be that detailed for us. I think for some people it might have to be. Um, but if there's like something new that you're going to try, um, that you've, you know, pre-negotiated, um, and you're at the point in the story where, you know, that was going to slot in, then yeah, take a moment and pause and say, okay, so now I'm going to move on to the thing that we decided. Are you still cool with that? Informed, consistent consent, everyone. This is, yeah. and I love this because we talk about consent so much in sexual circles. We don't talk about it as a consistent, ongoing, continuous thing you do during the sex act. And yeah, and, and that you want like enthusiastic response from your partner, not like gritted teeth response. Like, and if there's a gritted teeth response, stop and be like, hey, how are your pain levels? Are you all right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, check in. Was that pain or was that something else that you are, like, not paying attention to because you're scared? Totally. To say no. Just, you know. Because that's not cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was having a, I had a question when I was thinking about, when we, you were talking just there about, because you have four, you have three kids with disabilities. Yep. And that some of them are, you know, coming into the age where we talk about 
sex, and one of them used it at 16. And, like, so what do you think, as a disabled parent of disabled kids, what do you think sex education for them, what would you want it to look like? Um, okay, so first of all, it needs to be very queer positive because um, the number of folks within the disabled community who are queer, particularly within the autistic community who are queer, I think is way higher percentage-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and that queer includes, like, both, um, you know, in terms of attraction, but also in terms of gender um, and... Yeah, and presentation and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. So, so that has to be part of it. Um, consent, 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 consent is so huge. When we're dealing with, um, well, I, I, I'm going to make the assumption that you can appreciate this. Um, when other people have access to your body to do things to your body that you wouldn't necessarily like them to do, like medical procedures from a very early age. Yep. It is difficult to learn bodily autonomy yep. and consent. And so we've tried really, really hard with our kids since they were teensy tiny to look for enthusiastic consent in terms of all of our physical touch whenever possible. That doesn't mean we've done a perfect job of it as parents because, you know, sometimes you get frustrated and you're like, just put your bloody shoes on to your three-year-old. And then maybe you take their foot and you shove their foot in their shoe. This is not like ideal. You shouldn't aspire to this. But like, let's be honest, we don't get everything perfect. But disabled people fuck up. See? Yeah. Yeah. But things like um, if if we wanted to give our kids a hug, we always ask them if they wanted a hug. If we uh, if they asked us to tickle them, we would always like pause every like 10 to 15 seconds and check in. Do you still want me to tickle you? Um, I think that teaching a healthy relationship with consent and sexuality to kids with disabilities starts way, way, way before you introduce what you do with your body parts. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. It does. Um, it should I- also include some details about how to navigate like the complexities of your particular disability within a sexual reality. Totally, I think autistic. I think autistic sex head is completely different from somebody with with cerebral palsy sex head. I think each of them, ha- and we you know we don't see disabled um, sex head anywhere. So I just think a general overview would be nice to start. But I do think that if you know you're in a classroom with predominantly people with CP or who are wheelchair users, you tailor that to that. And if you know you have somebody with autism, you tailor something for them. I think we need to start looking at sex ed and disability as a tailored approach versus like everything will work for everyone because that doesn't, that's not, no. No. That was, you, you, and, you and anyone else you want to find, like if, if, you, if you decide you want to create a dis- disability sex ed curriculum, um, I want in on that, and I could probably find you a 19-year-old who you've already met and a 16-year-old who you haven't uh, who would love to be in on that fun. I mean, hey, I, if you want to talk off the air about creating something, I would be more than happy to do that with you because we could make some bank that way too. Let's let's <laughs> let's talk about it. Um, yeah. I, wa- I want to shift gears a bit because in a lot of your work and how I, fa- I don't know how we, we found each other on Twitter – I think, and um, 
in a lot of your tweets, you talk a lot about grief, loss, and disability. And I was curious about that because I talk a lot about grief and loss too. And, and what I've lost, kind of what my body can't do anymore and how I feel about that and, and how, you know, certain parts of my sexuality because of disability and because of medical intervention have been emasculated. And I've, I've talked a lot about that in the work I do. How do you... What are some of the things that you talk about in your disabled life that you, or your disabled sex life, or both, that you grieve about and you feel like you want to talk about when it comes to loss and disability? Okay. So first of all, part of the reason I talk so much about loss and disability is because uh, we lost a son at three weeks of age to a major disability. Um, Part of the reason I talk about grief and disability is because I see the way that it impacts parents um, who have living children with disabilities and the way that their unprocessed grief affects the things they let their kids do and the way that they interact with their kids. And um, I see the way that grief and loss tears apart um, partners when one partner ends up with a disability because like in general, our society sucks at grieving. So that's the back story to why I do that so much. Um, in general, things I miss, uh, having pain-free energy to do things I love, like hike in the woods or kayak or go on a canoe trip or cook a three-course meal or bake cookies or be a birth doula. Um, my husband loves being physical, but I also loved being active and you know engaged in the world, and I can't do those things anymore. When it comes to sex, um, I miss how good I was at fellatio. We've already talked about that. And uh, apparently... I think I maybe found another title for the episode. I miss how good I was at fellatio. Might have to yep. make that the one. Yep. Um, but I also miss having the energy to be more aggressive in bed, uh, to be able to be physically more active, to, you know roll around or try different positions and not have it not have to always be constantly like costing out the energy levels of everything that I want to say yes to like oh I can't do that because or I have to think about like how long are we going to be engaged in sexual activity for I have to pre-plan everything because I only have so much energy each day and if I go over that in a day, it can take me days to recover. It almost sounds like, like my mom was doing this thing with Weight Watchers for a while where you get like points. It almost yeah. sounds like the point counter where you're like, okay, I can, I could do five minutes of Lazio, but I can't do like 20 and I, and I can do I like. Yeah. I could do a lot with five minutes, man. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yep. So, so more, more of some of the things you, you grieve about then? That's, that's sort of like, like, if I had the energy to do the things and the muscle strength to do them, then, like, life would be fine. Um, how do you, I, as a disabled woman, going through all that stuff, how do you, like, because when I think about all the things that I wish I could do in bed with a partner, I get really mad, I get really angry really fast, and then you'll see me on Twitter, like, espousing that anger to the world because I'm really, like, I turn into... I have noticed that. I get really annoyed when I can't 
when I'm really horny and I can't access that part of myself, I get really angry. How do you, as somebody that deals, you know, specifically in grief and loss and all these things that you work in, how do you manage that or do you manage that? Um, sometimes better than others, let's be honest. Um, on my bad days, uh, I get pissy and I, I'm like, fine, I just don't want it anyways. Um, the, one of the things that, that doesn't work well for me right now is I don't have a high sex drive. Um, and so I actually am much more likely to be frustrated that I, I can't get to horny than the other way around. That sucks. Cause I, cause see for yeah. me, it's like, I'm there and I'm ready to like, come. Yeah, I'm, right? re- I'm ready to come at the drop of a hat, but I can't do anything about it. Which, and so, which is so- also frustrating. It's so frustrating because it's like, do I want to spend 300 bucks an hour to have somebody come over and like jerk me off? Or will I just sit in my sadness and hope that this feeling goes away for a minute? Like that's what that's. So when we talk about loss and like what I feel like I've lost, that's it's really frustrating because I feel like and I know this is totally gendered and fucked up. But as, as a man, I feel like I've, you know, I feel very emasculated by my sexuality because in queer spaces, I'm meant to be really you're supposed to be down to fuck all the time when you can't right. get there. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, I think in general, like having moved from the purity culture spaces that I started out in, into much more sex positive spaces. Like there is this, this idea that if, if you're not, if you're not there for whatever reason, um, that like maybe something's wrong with you. Um, and I mean, this intersects with like the ace community, um, and asexuality and stuff like that as well, um, which overlaps with disability an awful lot. But, um, yeah, I think, I think that there's this, I think that there's this feeling that if you, if you're not always thinking about sex, there must be something wrong with you. And if you don't always want sex, then there must be something incomplete about you. Terribly wrong with you. Terribly, terribly wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I like I find I find it tricky because I want to be able to be in that place. Like it's not like I'm for for me, I'm not ace, but I can't magic it. There's you know, something's not working right that way. So that's frustrating. And it's frustrating that we as a society, just hearing you talk, you know, in in our conversation today, you've used the word right a lot. We've really kind of vacillated between this concept of right and wrong. And it's really, it's upsetting for me to hear from you, like just talking to you, because how deeply ingrained the idea of right and wrong is when really it's just our bodies doing what they do. And I'm the same way. Like, I don't like this idea of right and wrong, but, you know, I'll be blunt with you. Last night I was, I was setting up a hookup with a guy and out of out of sheer excitement I ejaculated before he got there because my body was like oh you're gonna have sex great and so I've, I've, I awesome. my body just released and I felt so much shame immediately following that mm. because this hot dude was supposed to come over and make that happen for me in the conventional ways and when it didn't I had to text him back and be like we can't fuck around because I just came and now I feel like I've somehow let you down, but I don't even know who you are. And so it felt, it felt very, I felt super emasculated. So just talking to you about right and wrong, like I know that feeling of feeling like you've done something 
really wrong. And so when this happens mm-hmm. to me, like last night, I felt like I had done. I was lying in bed in you know in sheets that I can't I can't run up and wash the sheets. So I kind of just had to lie there and be like, okay, whatever. But like it was really frustrating because I felt like I had done something wrong when really my body had just done what it was supposed to do. Right. But we have so much shame tied into sexuality and the impacts of that on our culture and on us as individuals, whether we're disabled or not, is huge. And I think, like, I'm a coach. Sometimes people talk to me about their sex lives. So I I hear a lot of things from a lot of people. And uh, a lot of what I hear is shame. Shame about their bodies, shame about... Um, their sexuality, shame about the way that that sexuality is, um, you know, manifested in their lives. Yeah. And, um, I, I'm, I'm with Brene Brown. I don't think shame helps us. <laughs> no shame. I mean, it doesn't help us, but it's, it it sits right there and it's like, Hey, how are it's you? Right there. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I do think though that, Grief work helps with shame because grief work is vulnerability work. And Brene says that vulnerability is the path through shame. So there's this element of honesty that's like integral to um, grief. And when we're actually like honest, like, like, man, like that, I wanted something and I'm not going to get it. And this is the thing I wanted. And, and I feel completely shitty about it it can shift it from a shame conversation to like an experience where you're able to release some of that grief and some of that pain and have it actually be like net positive for you because you've worked through that's awesome um and thank you for letting me share my weird i came all over myself story and i want to talk about it thank you for letting me do that with you of course that's, uh, that's, a, that's a day in the life of my, me, so that doesn't bother <laughs> me. Um, I want, the last question I have for you, I want to talk about, you said you kind of like being an inner disabled dom, and I want to talk to you about what that means for you, because I too feel like a dom sometimes. I actually feel more like a switch, because I like to be subby when I'm with certain people, but, but what does being a disabled dom mean for you, and how does that manifest? So first of all, I have to say, my husband... My husband thought he was a switch, and it's a really good thing he's not, because I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely the dom. Um, it's, it's been an interesting journey to, like, get to the point of discovering this and, like, embracing it for us and figuring out how it works for us. Um, but it's one of the things we've been getting creative about over the past few months. And I think creativity is, like, super, super critical to success in navigating disabilities in general, like curiosity and creativity. Like, I wonder why that happens. I wonder what else we could do. I wonder, you know, how could we make this work? Like you have to be willing to like take some risks and be creative and get curious. And we've discovered that it turns out um, that me being disabled doesn't have to stop me being a dom at all. It's just changes how we have to set it up. So for me, um, I use things like controlling the sensations and the story and the actions of my sub as ways to be a dom. So I can do that with very limited movement, lying flat on my back in my bed. 
Um, but I tell my sub what my sub needs to do. So, you know, sub, get out the sex toy. Sub, lay across me so that I can get the sex toy in the position I want to get it in. Uh, Sub, you know, try this position so that I can spank you. Um, You know, I can tell the story that I know will uh, take my sub exactly where I want them to go. Like, all of those are options for me. And I haven't moved once. That's great. That's awesome. Except maybe like a little bit of hand movement. And I do. The, I, I do the same thing with when I'm when I'm being dominant. I just like do this, do this, like. But I'm le- I'm learning to be more dominant and less caring about what the able-bodied person that I'm sleeping with feels like about the situation, and just trying to enjoy like what is happening in the moment. Because again, we talked earlier about like being medicalized so much when I'm with an able-bodied person I almost defer to their able-bodiedness to run the sex we're having which if if that makes sense like because because they're able-bodied they are automatically the powerful one and so I'm learning to like let that go a little bit and be like no you're the powerful one here particularly in like in like a sex work situation I'm I'm hiring you so technically I'm the one who calls the shots (laughs) Yeah, because, like, there's, there's, a, there's so much, like, waiting to the experience of being disabled. Like, having to cooperate and having to get along with care workers and waiting for medical professionals and, like, being polite to navigate the system. And, like, it's true for my life, like, in so many areas, like, in the home, outside of the home. Like, it's so much a part of my reality. And even, like, with my body... I often feel really out of control. Like I have to deal with a combination of the fatigue and the tight tendons and the pain and the odd nerve sensations that just sort of show up out of the blue and oh, that's fun. make it hard to cope with the additional sensory seeking elements that are often involved in sex, which is actually how we started this conversation. Cause I was like, Hey, Andrew, do you know anything about like um, dealing with uh, sensory seeking behavior with, uh, pain management in um, in sex, and you were like, "No, we should talk." <laughs> so, and I still don't, but I hope that our conversation today was sort of helpful. Well, it it was part of a bigger conversation my husband and I were having about you know getting curious curious about this, and some of the answers I've shared with you are actually like us having worked through it because we started that conversation like two months ago, and so. My husband and I have been working on it for you since then. Oh, amazing. But I'm glad that I me, could give you some homework. Yeah, because for me, like, being a dom allows me to reverse all the roles. I get to be the one to choose the sensations, and I get to be the one to choose the limit of them for somebody else. Like, I'm the one in control of the story. And, you know, if he says, please, 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 can I have this, I get to decide if I say yes or no. Um, and if I want to, you know, extend the sexual tension a little bit more, like that's on me. Sexual tension is the best part of being a disabled person having sex because you don't have to do anything. There's no physicality required for that to be there. It just is there. Right? But that doesn't mean it isn't fun. Yeah. Um, and I feel like when I'm in control of the story and the sensory inputs, I can give myself more fully to our engagement knowing that, like, I get to decide exactly how much pressure, exactly the position, exactly the length of our playtime. And then 
when I know I've got all of that in my control, like then I can relax and enjoy the experience knowing that like I know my own limits and I can keep myself safe. Yeah. Because I don't really trust anybody else to do that, not even someone I've spent my entire life with. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Disability makes you, in my experience too, disability makes you, it's really hard to trust anybody else, even if you love them to bits and they're going to do their best for you. Trust when you're a disabled person that needs complex care help. Yeah. Well, when you're a disabled person generally, but especially if you're somebody with who needs complex care, trust is a big fucking deal. Huge. Absolutely huge. And and I'm not yet to the point where, like, I might end up. So, you know, I think about where that trajectory is going, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's even worse than it would be now. And so, not to end it on a weird summer note, but I do want to ask, like, what? so, like, what is the trajectory? No idea. I just know that if the muscles keep weakening, you know, uh, the muscles that support my breathing are weaker now than they were five years ago. And if did, they keep getting weaker, then how will they be supported? Yeah. Like, and so does, know, does the idea, does the idea, because we were talking about a little bit about loss, so does the idea of that loss, like, does that loss scare you? Because you seem, like, in talking with you for the last two hours, you seem really, like, confident. You seem really like, oh, yeah, this is my disability, whatever. Like, does it, is there a sense of, like, is there a sense of, of fear that you have around all this stuff, or do you just kind of go with the flow? Um, I've spent a lot of the last five years trying to, like, shift the way that I function from a place of fear to a place of love, because I don't know how long my life is going to be, and I don't want to waste it being afraid. Um, like, that's been a huge part of my own, like, internal growth and process. And so, yeah, there's a part of my mind that, like, if I go there, um, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's scary. It's, it's scary. Um, and I, I certainly, like, I'm very aware of it. We're, we're in the middle of building this accessible home. And, and I have definitely, like, taken stock of worst-case scenarios. And I am building a house that will be accessible for me in worst case scenario land. Like I'm not leaving anything undone that I could do so that that I can have the highest quality of life possible in that moment. That being said, I, none of us knows how long we get to live. Nope. None of us gets to know whether tomorrow we'll be alive or not in the hospital or not. Um, on a ventilator or not, like whatever your idea of a worst case scenario is, none of us gets to know that from one day to the next. So I feel like one of the things that my, my whole life has been, has been like this recognition of like, do something good with the day you've got. What are you going to do with today? That, Cause that's all you know you've got. That's yes. all you get. And you don't even know you have today. <laughs> like, you don't even know. Yeah. That it... No. So, so what are you doing right now? Like, like I, I don't know how long my life is going to be, and I don't know what the, what the capacity of that life is going to be. Um, but I want to go out with a bang. So I'm going to do something. With, I want to go with a gangbang. So if anybody wants to... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> if anyone wants to get, up for that. Yeah, if anyone wants to get on my last uh, hurrah, let me know. I I want I want my I want there to be something to say about Heather whenever this is all over. Like she did this with her life. Um not not because of her disability, not not because she wasn't disabled, just just because this is the person she was. And this is this is the kind of um impact that she had on the world. And that's still probably ableist and still probably problematic in all sorts of ways, but that's where I'm at in my own journey with it. And I think that's fair. And I love that you said that. And it just reiterates what I, what I have been feeling a lot recently and what I will say on the show again, dismantling ableism is a, is a journey. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes all these things. And so it won't happen overnight. And I think that if you want to just be the person you are, regardless of disability for you at this moment, that's, totally fine i think you being a disabled person makes you more awesome personally but well yeah but i just mean like i don't i i guess what i was really like thinking about in that is like the whole like info porn side of things like i don't want to be oh this this disabled person did all these things no like i can do the things i do specifically because of my disabilities i would not have the perspective i had i would not have asked the questions i've asked i would not have the capacity to contribute what I can contribute if I wasn't disabled because it all comes through that lens. So like I totally acknowledge and embrace that part of it, but just like, I also think that there's probably something ableist in like the idea of having an impact. Like that's a very like, Oh yeah. Because you know then, then, yeah. Cause then non-disabled people are going to see you and be like, well, she had an impact only cause she was, disabled if she was just a a white woman named susan and where she is nobody would care but because she's disabled she's somehow like yeah i get it yeah so it's just like it's so messy and but as you say like that um dismantling ableism is such a process and i think that we'll all be on it for the rest of our lives like because we're always connecting with our bodies and and because really like at the crux of it ableism is about like how do we value ourselves as humans and how do we value those around us and that's always a question we have to ask yeah totally we've almost been talking for another whole two hours since we hit record again which is awesome i'm down for that uh but so i am going to to sign off of the world bloggers podcast i'm so sorry i mean it's awesome though because all of it's good and i can't edit where shit so it's all singing but um how can P- Heather Morgan, how can people get a hold of you? How can they follow your work? How can they talk to you about all this stuff? Um, so they can find me at www.poweredbylove.ca. Um, that's my website. And you can find me using that uh, handle on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Amazing. I'll make sure that all of that's in the show notes. Heather Morgan, this was such a fun conversation. Thank you for taking the time today. Um, I love chatting with you, and I definitely want to talk to you off the air because so many things. Uh, So many things. This was so great. Thank you for reaching out to me and for making this happen. It was great. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. This has been another episode of the podcast, shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. Disability After Dark. My name is Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled dicksmith. If you want to follow my work and you like what I do, you can follow me at www.andrewgerza.com. Go to my website. You can see 
my award-winning documentary, Picture This is up there. You can see some cool videos I've done with some internet celebrities are up there, like Davey Wavy, and you can also see where I've given talks in the past. And if you ever want to book me to do an in-person or digital talk, you can do it there. If you want to follow my social media where I talk about disability rights, disability justice, everything disability, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Andrew Gerza. That's I-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A on both Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, we're on Twitter, DisAftDarkPod. You can follow us there. If you want to support the show, you can pledge to our Patreon, patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. You can pledge $1 a month or $5 a month to keep this show going. We'd really appreciate it. The show is fully independently produced by me here in my bedroom. Alright, well thank you for listening to this episode. We will be back next week for a whole new episode. Until then... Stay comfy, cozy, and crippled, y'all. Thanks. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations, with music by Chris Ujiuji. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be distributed or used without express permission. Copyright 2020.